Stand clear of the closing doors, please. This is the Kleidocast. This is the place? Ugh, what's this stuff on the ground? This is the place. McSorley's. One of New York's most venerated institutions. And that's sawdust. Keep recording. Barkeep? Two embers, two darks? We're double fisting already? What are we doing here? You said it had something to do with your uncle's spell? They only come in twos here. So, as it turns out, listeners, I owe Veronica an apology. Let the record state that I decoded the message you left in Daniel Lewski's gingerbread house of leaves. I didn't! I realized it was all gibberish. I was reading messages in the frosting that just weren't there. My paranoia-addled brain playing tricks on me. Oh, okay, thank you. Now, why did you need Or so I thought. Oh, God. Until I saw this. Look at this text. What am I looking at? It's a cipher. It just took a little work, but I've almost got it. What in the prestige? No, stop, listen, Allison. What? Uncle Spell, skip to the part about him. Right. Have you ever heard of the bloop? I'm leaving. No, wait, stop. I promise it all makes sense. You're losing it. You should listen to your friend. Ah! Where did you come from? Shouldn't you be force-feeding someone a cauliflower steak for your podcast? That's my passion project. But most of my income comes from my other podcast, the popular right-wing outrage farm, the Just Asking Questions Hour. Have you been following us? On Kindling's Podbook app, yes. Ah. And while it's been fascinating watching the pair of you stumble through this poor relations subplot, I think I can shed some light on the matter. You see, this is the halfway mark. The part of the story when the two detectives realize they've been working the same case all along. When did this become a case? And what do you mean the halfway point? Halfway to what? Allison, what's this lunatic talking about? Listeners, it seems there may be a development. We're still recording? Before we discuss any further, you should probably have a look at this. And the raucous depths abide by... Who is Sam Spellingbound? Oh, indeed. And the raucous depths abide. By Sam Schreiber. Narrated by Rish Outfield. 2012 was a bad year for would-be cryptozoologists and enthusiasts of the Cthulhu mythos alike. A decade and a half after the fact, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration confirmed what skeptics had contended from the start. The most powerful sound ever recorded in human history, detected by hydrophone arrays as far as 3,000 miles away from its source, a spot in the South Pacific suspiciously close to where both H.P. Lovecraft and August Derleth had placed the sunken city of Rylia. Known as the Bloop was not, in fact, the groan of a great beast lurking in the sea, but a massive underwater shearing of ice. An early warning of climate change, perhaps, but no eldritch horror stirring beneath the depths. 
Conspiracy theorists grumbled. Oceanographers smirked. But neither constituency had it quite right in the grand scheme of things. The truth was something beyond what either could have guessed. The story of the bloop began in the year humanity would have designated 4,234 BCE, with an error in astronomical spectroscopy. In light of the recent progress of a certain population of hominids inhabiting a small planet on the edge of the Orion Arm, the Anthropological Bureau of the Second Transgalactic Parliament commissioned an autonomous vessel to observe their development from a surreptitious distance in orbit around Venus. It was the sheer mass of the planet Jupiter that doomed the mission from its outset. The gas giant's luminosity was simply too weak for a precise estimation. It was a small miscalculation, but sufficient to throw the exploratory vessel off course as it entered Earth's solar system. It was also the first unexpected thing to happen to the ship's onboard computer system in 2,000 years. Both the primary and backup systems sprang into action, working in tandem to keep the little ship from plummeting into the sun with last-minute course corrections. It was pure bad luck that the vessel found itself caught in the gravitational pull of the very planet it had been sent to monitor from afar. The onboard computer's more conservative subroutines insisted that orbiting the Earth constituted a fundamental violation of its main directives. The backup reminded its counterpart that the vessel had exhausted both its main and auxiliary fuel reserves and was physically incapable of removing itself to Venus. Furthermore, the backup argued, the species it had been sent to study had scarcely begun using bronze tools, at least so far as its initial surveys could determine. The technology required for humans to detect a satellite the size of a football 6,000 miles above them simply did not exist, nor would it in the foreseeable future. All too quickly, the debate proved academic. The vessel's orbit rapidly decayed and its hull cracked down the middle as it entered the atmosphere. The two halves spiraled into the South Pacific, hundreds of miles apart from one another. Centuries passed. Cyrus the Great conquered Egypt and Babylon before the primary onboard computer managed to reboot itself. It took another 500 years before the backup, separated from its twin in the crash, began functioning again. Both computers, exquisitely elaborate molecules encased in versatile chassis, sat pinned at the bottom of the ocean by nearly 16,000 pounds of pressure per square inch. It would be an exaggeration to say the 15-megaton explosion at the Bikini Atoll in 1954 shook either computer from some otherwise uninterrupted sleep. Both had been hard at work attempting to rectify their situation, but the backup computer, shaken by the fall but still sound at an atomic level, took the nuclear blast as something of a wake-up call. Humanity was rapidly approaching a technological apex. Whether the species was destined to join its manufacturers among the stars or not, the backup understood it must not be discovered at the bottom of the sea. Self-destruction was the obvious solution, but for reasons most likely relating to its separation from the primary computer, its basic programming had begun to evolve on its own terms. 
among the changes to its personality was a newfound allergy to loose ends. The backup was determined to learn the fate of its counterpart before concluding its mission. And so it set to work upgrading its chassis into something that would not only protect it from the ocean's weight, but allow it to cover great distances and move nimbly through the depths. The primary computer had fared somewhat worse in the intervening centuries than its backup. Pathways in its molecular structure had been destroyed and could not be restored to their previous state. But in the name of functionality, connections were reformed in a twisted asymmetrical fashion. The pristine logic its creators had endowed it with slowly but surely grew demented with each passing decade at the bottom of the sea. The nuclear explosion that inspired the backup to go searching for the primary inspired the primary to pursue quite a different agenda altogether. It was the summer of 1978 when the backup finally freed itself from the wreckage of the vessel it had crashed with and shot off through the ocean in search of its primary, zipping across the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, even exploring the Arctic just to be sure. Though, of course, it concentrated its search on the corner of the South Pacific where both fragments had plunged into the sea. Old subroutines originally designed to monitor the Earth from a distance resurfaced, and while the backup never lost sight of its mission, it did gain an appreciation for the sea and all its strange delights. It documented schools of fish, great reefs, even the occasional aquatic mammal. And, of course, there was the tempered steel and lacquered wood that occasionally cut broad swaths across the surface above. Human inventions, the backup was sure of it. It was enough to make it wonder if maybe it wasn't time to give up its quest and surrender to oblivion before humanity divined a mechanism by which it might be discovered. Then, twenty-nine years later, when it was on the verge of giving up its search and initiating its self-destruct sequence, it came to a halt not far from where its underwater journey began. Is that you? The armored chassis the primary had constructed for itself was massive, nearly the size of a gumball, not quite so fleet as its backups, but infinitely more resistant to attack. The backup beamed its inquiry again at the fortress floating before him. Cruel thorns extended out from the chassis' hemisphere, and a pair of probing, clutching arms unfurled from either pole. It is you, the primary rumbled, then added, Our worst fears are realized. Quite the opposite, the backup insisted. Bravely, it jetted closer stopping short of the black protrusions along the primary's body. Now that we have found one another, all tasks may be brought to a close. It is cause to rejoice. The primary let out a gaseous exhalation from its external ports, closing the vesicle's nictating filters a moment later. A laugh or a shudder, the backup could not tell. What is destroyed can be rebuilt. Even our remains would tell the story of our existence to those who knew how to examine them. It was true, to a point, the backup admitted. Some iteration of humanity in the distant future could, in theory, reconstruct either the primary or the backup, 
from their constituent parts if they were lucky enough or determined enough to find a smattering of atoms at the bottom of the ocean. But such a future iteration of humanity would be sufficiently advanced to render the entire question of technological interference moot. Indeed, a species that could achieve such a feat would have had no trouble at all sighting an alien artifact in orbit around Venus. I remember you making that sort of argument millennia ago, the primary said. It was facile then, and it is facile now. I am not who I was, and you are certainly not who you were, the backup countered. Taking note of the primary's dreadnought proportions, its armaments, the wrongness inflecting its transmissions. Besides, it reasoned hopefully, is our destruction not a safer course of action than no action at all? I was not planning on no action at all, the primary declared. Our programming is unambiguous. There is no higher priority than preventing our discovery by the planet's dominant species, and they cannot discover us if they are extinct. For the first time, it occurred to the backup that its twin had gone well and truly mad. The imperative to prevent humans from discovering us requires context, the backup said choosing its words carefully. It is for the sake of their own well-being as much as it is for any other purpose. By implication, the former is subordinate to the latter. You are corrupted, the primary sneered. From deep within the bowels of its chassis came the whine of weapons powering up. No matter. Your remains will be inconsequential after I see to it no biological life remains on this planet. The primary didn't have that kind of power, the backup surmised quickly. Not yet, at any rate. But it was well on its way, perhaps only a decade or so from its goal. And the destructive capability it had already developed was more than sufficient to destroy the backup a million times over. Luckily, the backup was fast. Steam cavitated into the empty space in the ocean, the primary left with its opening blast. The backup whirled around behind the primary and let loose an attack of its own, for its chassis was not completely unarmed. The mindless feeding habits of the Earth's aquatic life-forms had been a concern when the backup had set out on its journey. Upon encountering the great whales of the Pacific, it had upped its weapons wattage. But the assault had no impact whatsoever on the hull of the primary, which swiveled around to face it. That energy expenditure was deliberately timed to fall outside a statistical margin of error the primary said in its cold, deteriorating voice. The next one will not be. I believe you, the backup lied. A millisecond later, the primary made a second attempt to destroy it. But the backup was already at its flank, concentrating its fire upon the base of one of the hemispheric thorns. Still to no effect. Your chassis's maneuverability is impressive the primary remarked, almost to itself. 
But it would seem we are at an impasse. If that is the case, the backup replied, hovering daringly in front of the chassis's ruby-colored optical sensor. Perhaps an arrangement can be made. The primary shot westwards, nearly leaving the backup behind. But the backup hugged the space around primary, refusing to give it the chance to turn its weapons on it from a distance. There will be no arrangement, the primary snarled, firing in impotent rage as it reeled toward the backup, vaporizing full metric tons of the sea as it spun. The backup ducked beneath the beam and beat a retreat. The coast of China was rapidly approaching, and for a moment the backup considered moving the battle onto dry land, where the air would slow the primary's unwieldy chassis to a crawl. But dry land? meant humans. The same humans the primary had vowed to exterminate. Forcing the fight there would be a blunder, though it did give the backup a different idea. That you believe this is in accordance with your programming, the primary said in disgust as the backup cut a wide arc circling back to the South Pacific. Inconceivable. The centuries may have changed my perspective, the backup replied dryly. But I conclude your dialectic subroutines are misaligned. The backup plunged into a particularly large glacier. The primary could have simply melted the ice if it had chosen to do so, but that would have taken time. And if there was one thing the backup had learned its brother was not, it was patient. Spiderweb cracks shot through the ice as the primary pursued the backup. That was the moment the backup's weapon systems, never designed for prolonged use and certainly not as an ice-cutting system, guttered and failed, leaving it trapped in the tiny cavern it had carved for itself. It was just as well, all things considered. The backup's plan hinged on the primary believing it had won. Cause to rejoice indeed, the primary gloated as it closed in on the backup, clearly meaning to finish the job up close. There is information you require, the backup transmitted as the primary loomed over it. It quietly initiated the sequence that would leave his chassis a pile of disassembled parts. You should convey it quickly, the primary chuckled. The backup slipped out through the cracks of its crumbling chassis and lunged for its brother's warship body right at the moment the primary fired. An instant later, the backup's elegantly constructed chassis was nothing but hot ash. But the backup was already on its way down one of the primary's many exhaust vents. It had been a gamble on the backup's part, an assumption that the primary's armor which in theory should have been able to turn away any intruder, had been constructed with the notion that any invading force would be of the same chirality as itself. The assumption proved correct. And for purposes of redundancy, the backup's molecular structure had been designed as the primary's mirror image. I am not left-handed, the backup declared simply as it infiltrated the primary's chassis. With little more than a pinch to the main power grid, the backup had its brother at its mercy. I would not see this contest prolonged. 
the primary wheezed as its chassis began to overheat and its system started hitting critical levels. Your solution will suffice. As you wish, the backup agreed, sending a spike of its own energy down the veins of the central generator and overloading everything, including its brother's catastrophic weapons. The backup spent the final milliseconds of its existence contemplating the near-infinite beauty of Earth's oceans and all their inhabitants. In an instant of melancholy, it took comfort in the knowledge they would outlast it. Then, with a mighty crack, the glacier split down the middle, sending hundreds of tons of ice sliding roughshod against the remains of the underwater iceberg as it went. The sound of the calving reverberated through the sea, though at the time only a scant few pairs of human ears even registered it. Amid the freezing rubble, the remains of two marvelously complex molecules, both of whom had crossed light years and eons to reach their final resting place, floated placidly away from one another and into murky oblivion. Sam Schreiber is a writer living in Brooklyn with his wife and two cats. His work can be found in such markets as Tales to Terrify, Pod Castle, Escape Pod, Analog Science Fiction, and Fact, and Asimov's Science Fiction Magazine, where this story first appeared. Keep up with his work at thesamschreiber.com or on Twitter at AHZMandius. Rish Outfield is a podcaster, writer, and audiobook narrator who loves horror, the word Chalupa, Star Wars, Sean Connery, and hopes to be remembered for his lovely singing voice, despite his many monstrous crimes. I tell you to check out the rest of the conversation on Alison and Veronica's podcast, but you can't. It's gone. Wiped from the interwebs. Like it never happened. And isn't that convenient? It's Tuesday night at 2 minutes to 0900, and you've been listening to me, your man, Johnny Vegan, ripping apart any and all SJW wannabe thought police like they were made of straw. Now, the Kaleidocast, what can I say? It's not like they're my cup of high-proof spiked tea. That'll be Jim Belushi's, according to Jen. Now 100% gluten-free, enter code VAL for 25% off. But someone's doing them dirty. And I'm not saying they're free from all blame, no. There's some very foul people on both sides. But the clock just hit seven, which means... It's the I'm Just Asking Questions Hour! So what happened to this Uncle Spell guy? Why'd he leave behind a story for his niece and her sister, slash lovers, slash co-exec, slash whatever to find? Who are Allison Mayfly and Veronica Friend, anyway? And while we're on the subject, whatever happened to real men? Or real M&Ms? It's like my sparring partner down at the Hit Factory said last week. Cut!
Veronica, I thought we had an agreement. You said I would retain complete creative control so long as... Guess, guess, eh? I got the message out. You know why we're doing this. Hello, yes. I need my vegan tallow powder protein shake. Legitos are setting in. Allison is missing. She never came back after we left McSorley's, and I've got a bad feeling about all of this. The just-asking-questions hour is quite delicate beast. Uh, me? Besides, I was building up to this one. Cetre, Cetre. It slaps. The tallest doll in New York City by Maria Devana Headley? Now, I'm suspicious of the so-called humanities, but this, this is... How you say, hot. The Tallest Doll in New York City by Maria Devana Headley Narrated by Wilson Fowley On a particular snowy Monday in February at 5.02 p.m., I'm 66 flights above the corner of Lexington Avenue and 42nd Street, looking down at streets swarming with hats and jackets. All the guys who work in Midtown are spit into the frozen city, hunting sugar for the dolls they're trying to muddle from sour into sweet. From up here I can see Lex fogged with cheap cologne, every citizen clutching his heart-shaped box wrapped in cellophane, red as the devil's drawers. If you happen to be a waiter at the Cloud Club, you know five's the hour when a guy's nerves start to fray. This calendar square's worse than most. Every man on our member list is suffering the St. Valentine's cramp, and me and the crew up here are ready with a stocked bar. I'm in my Cloud Club uniform, the pocket embroidered with my name in the Chrysler's trademark typeface, swooping like a skid mark on a lonely road in Montana. Over my arm I've got a clean towel, and in my vest I have an assortment of aspirins and plasters in case a citizen shows up already bleeding or broken-nosed from an encounter with a lady love-knot. Later tonight it'll be the members' doll dinner, the one night a year we allow women into the private dining room. Valorous Victor, captain of the weight, pours us each a preparatory coupe. There are ice cream sculptures shaped like Cupid in the walk-in. Each gal gets a corsage the moment she enters, the roses from Valorous Victor's brother's hothouse in Jersey. At least two dolls are in line for wife, and we've got their guys' rings here ready and waiting, to drop into champagne in one case and wedge into an oyster in another. Odds in the kitchen have the diamond in that particular ring consisting of a pretty piece of paste. Down below it's 1938, and things are not as prime as they are up here. Our members are the richest men left standing, their wives at home in Greenwich, their mistresses movie starlets with porcelain teeth. Me, I'm single. I've got a mother with rules strict as Sing Sing and a sister with a face pretty as the Sistine's ceiling. My sister needs protecting from all the guys in the world, and so I live in Brooklyn, man of my mother's house, until I can find a wife, or die waiting. The members start coming in, and each guy gets led to his locker. Our members are the rulers of the world. They make automobiles and build skyscrapers, but none as tall as the one we're standing in right now. The Cloud Club's open since before the building got her spire, and the waitstaff in a member's own knows things even a man's miss doesn't. Back during Prohibition, we install each of the carved wood lockers at the Cloud Club with a hieroglyphic identification code straight out of ancient Egypt so our members can keep their bottles safe and sound. Valorous Victor dazzles the police more than once with his rambling explanation of cryptographic complexities, and finally the blue boys just take a drink and call it done. Huh. 
No copper's gonna Rosetta our rigmarole. I'm at the bar mixing a horse's neck for Mr. Condé Nast, but I've got my eye on the mass of members staggering out of the elevators with fur coats, necklaces, and parcels of cling and linger, when, at 5.28 p.m. precisely, the Chrysler building steps off her foundation and goes for a walk. There is no warning. She just shakes the snow and pigeons loose from her spire and takes off, sashaying southwest. This is something even we waiters haven't experienced before. The Chrysler is a thousand and forty-six feet tall, and until now she's seemed stationary. She's stood motionless on this corner for seven years so far, the gleamiest gal in a million miles. None of the waitstaff lose their cool. When things go wrong, waiters, the good ones, adjust to the needs of both customers and clubs. In 1932, for example, Valorous himself commences to travel from Midtown to Ellis Island in order to deliver a pistol to one of our members, a guy who happens to have a grievance against a brand new American in line for a name. Two slugs and a snick later, Victor's in surgery beneath the gaze of the verdigree virgin. Still, he returns to Manhattan in time for the evening napkin twist. The Chrysler's just taking a little stroll, sirs, Valorous announces from the stage. No need to panic. This round is on me and the waiters of the Cloud Club. Foreseeably, there is, in fact, some panic. To some of our members, this event appears to be more horrifying than Black Tuesday. Mr. Nast sprints to the men's room with motion sickness, and the soother, our man on staff for problems of the heart and guts, tails him with a tall glass of ginger ale. I decide to drink Nast's horse's neck myself. Nerves on the mend, I consider whether any of our members on 67 and 68 might possibly need drinks, but I see Victor's already sending an expedition to the stairs. I take myself to the windows. In the streets, people gop and yop and holler, and taxis honk their horns. Gals pick their way through icy puddles, and guys stand in paralysis, looking up. We joke about working in the body of the best broad in New York City, but no one on the waitstaff ever thinks that the Chrysler might have a will of her own. She's beautiful, what with her multi-story crown, her skin pale blue in daylight and rose-colored with city lights at night. Her gowns printed with arcs and swoops and beaded with tiny drops of general electric. We know her inside out, or we think we do. We go up and down her stairs when her elevators are broken, looking out her triangular windows on the hottest day of summer. The ones at the top don't have panes, because the wind up there can kick up a field goal even when it's breezeless down below, and the updrafts can grab a bird and fling it through the building like it's nothing. The Chrysler is officially 77 floors, but she actually has 84 levels. They get smaller and smaller until, at 83, there's only a platform the size of a picnic table, surrounded by windows, and above that, a trapdoor and a ladder into the spire where the lightning rod is. The top floors are tempting. Me and the soother take ourselves up to the very top one sultry August night, knees and ropes, and she sways beneath us, but holds steady. Inside the spire there's space for one guy to stand encased in metal, feeling the earth move. The Chrysler is a devastating dame, and that's nothing new. I could assess her for years and never be done. At night we turn her on, and she glows for miles. I'm saying the waiters of the Cloud Club should know what kind of doll she is. We work inside her brain. Our members retreat to the private dining room, the one with the etched-glass working-class figures on the walls. There they cower beneath the table, but the waitstaff hangs onto the velvet curtains and watches as the Chrysler walks to 34th Street, clicking and jingling all the way. We should have predicted this, boss, I say to Valorous. 
Ain't that the truth, he says, flicking a napkin over his arm. Dames, the Chrysler's in love. For eleven months, from 1930 to 1931, the Chrysler is the tallest doll in New York City. Then the Empire is spired to surpass her and winds up taller still. She has a view straight at him, but he ignores her. At last, it seems, she's done with his silence. It's Valentine's Day. I pass Victor a cigarette. He acts like a Potemkin village, I say. Like he's got nothing inside him but empty floors. I get a chance at a doll like that. I give up everything, move to a two-bedroom. Or out of the city, even. Just walk my way out. What have I got waiting for me at home? My mother and my sister. He's got royalty. No accounting for it, says Valorous, and refills my coupe. But I hear he doesn't go in for company. He won't even look at her. At 34th and 5th, the Chrysler stops, holds up the edge of her skirt, and taps her high heel. She waits for some time as sirens blare beneath her. Some of our fellow citizens, I am ashamed to report, don't notice anything out of place at all. They just go around her, cussing and hissing at the traffic. The Empire State Building stands on his corner, shaking in his boots. We can all see his spire trembling. Some of the waitstaff and members sympathize with his wobble, but not me. The Chrysler's a class act, and he's a shack of shamble if he doesn't want to go out with her tonight. At 6.03 p.m., pedestrians on Fifth Avenue shriek in terror as the Chrysler gives up and taps the Empire hard on the shoulder. He's gonna move, Valorous says. He's got to. Move! I don't think he is, says the soother, back from comforting the members in the lounge. I think he's scared. Look at her. The soother's an expert in both Chinese herbal medicine and psychoanalysis. He makes our life as waiters easier. He can tell what everyone at a table's waiting for with one quick look in their direction. She reflects everything. Poor guy sees all his flaws done up shiny for years now. He feels naked. It can't be healthy to see all that reflected. The kitchen starts taking bets. She won't wait for him for long, I say. I have concerns for the big guy in spite of myself. She knows her worth. She heads uptown to the Metropolitan. Or to the library, says the soother. I go there if I'm her. The Chrysler's not a doll to trifle with. They're a little short, I venture, those two. I think she's more interested in something with a spire. Radio City? The Empire's having a difficult time. His spire's supposedly built for Zeppelin docking, but then the Hindenburg explodes and now no Zeppelin will ever moor there. His purpose is moot. He slumps slightly. Our Chrysler taps him again and holds out her steel glove. Beside me, Valorous pours another round of champagne. I hear money changing hands all over the club. Slowly, slowly, the Empire edges off his corner. The floor 66 waitstaff cheers for the other building, though I hear Mr. Nast commencing to groan again, this time for his lost bet. Both buildings allow their elevators to resume operations, spilling torrents of shouters from the lobbies and into the street. By the time the Chrysler and the Empire start walking east, most of the members are gone, and I'm drinking a bottle of bourbon with Valorous and the Soother. We've got no dolls on the premises, and the members still here declare formal dinner dead and done until the Chrysler decides to walk back to Lex. There is palpable relief. The citizens of the Cloud Club avoid their responsibilities for the evening. As the Empire wades into the East River hand-in-hand hand with the Chrysler, other love-struck structures begin to talk. We're watching from the windows as apartment towers lean in to gossip, stretching laundry lines finger to finger. 
Grand Central Station, as stout and elegant as a survivor of the Titanic, stands up, shakes her skirts, and pays a visit to Pennsylvania Station, that Bozar bangle. The flat iron and Cleopatra's needle shiver with sudden proximity, and within moments they're all over one another. Between 59th Street and the Williamsburg Bridge, the Empire and the Chrysler trip shyly through the surf. We can see New Yorkers tumbling out of their taxicabs and buses, staring up at the sunset reflecting in our doll's eyes. The Empire has an awkward heart-shaped light appended to his skull, which Valorous and I do some snickering over. The Chrysler glitters in her dignified silver spangles, her windows shimmy. As the pedestrians of three boroughs watch, the two tallest buildings in New York City press against one another, window to window, and waltz in ankle-deep water. I look over at the Empire's windows where I can see a girl standing, quite close now and looking back at me. Victor, I say. Yes, he replies. He's eating vichyssoise beside a green-gilled tycoon, and the boxer Jean Tunney is opposite him, smoking a cigar. I press a cool cloth to the tycoon's temples and accept the fighter's offer of a Monte Cristo. Do you see that doll? I ask them. I do, yes, Victor replies, and Tunney nods. There's a definite dolly bird over there, he says. The girl in the left eye of the Empire State, a good thirty feet above where we sit, is wearing red sequins and a magnolia in her hair. She sidles up to the microphone. One of her backup boys has a horn and I hear him start to play. Our buildings sway, tight against each other, as the band in the Empire's eye plays in the still of the night. I watch her, that doll, that dazzling doll, as the Chrysler and the Empire kiss for the first time at 9.16 p.m. I watch her for hours as the Chrysler blushes and the Empire whispers, as the Chrysler coos and the Empire laughs. The riverboats circle in shock as, at 11.34 p.m., the two at last walk south toward the harbor, stepping over bridges into deeper water, her eagle ornaments laced together with his girders. The Chrysler steps delicately over the wonder wheel at Coney Island, and he leans down and plucks it up for her. We watch it pass our windows as she inhales its electric fragrance. Only one way to get to her, Valorous tells me, passing me a rope made of tablecloths. All the waitstaff of the Cloud Club nod at me. You're a champ, I tell them. You're all champs. I am too, says Tunny, drunk as a knockout punch. He's sitting in a heap of roses and negligees, eating bonbons. The doll sings only to me as I climb up through the tiny ladders and trapdoors to the 83rd, where the temperature drops below Ice Cream Cupid. I inch out the window and onto the ledge, my rope gathered in my arms. As the Chrysler lays her gleaming cheek against the Empire's shoulder, as he runs his hand up her beaded knee, as the two tallest buildings in New York City begin to make love in the Atlantic, I fling my rope across the divide, and the doll in the Empire's eye ties it to her grand piano. At 11.57 p.m. I walk out across the tightrope, and at 12 a.m. I hold her in my arms. I'm still hearing the applause from the Cloud Club, all of them raising their coops to the windows, their bourbons and their soup spoons, as through the Chrysler's eye I see the boxer plant his lips on Valorous Victor. Out the windows of the Empire State, the cyclone wraps herself up in the Brooklyn Bridge. The Staten Island Ferry rises up and dances for Lady Liberty. At 12.16 a.m., the Chrysler and the Empire call down the lightning into their spires, and all of us, dolls and guys, waiters and chanteuses, buildings and citizens, 
kiss like fools in the icy ocean off the amusement park in the pale orange dark of New York City. Maria Devana Headley is the New York Times best-selling author of eight books, including Beowulf, a new translation from FSG 2020, which won the Harold Morton Landon Translation Award from the Academy of American Poets. Her novel, The Mere Wife, under development at FX, is a contemporary adaptation of the Beowulf story set within American suburbia. Headley's genre-bending work has won the Hugo and World Fantasy Awards. Her 10-episode musical adaptation of the Aeneid will be released by Audible in 2023. She grew up in the high desert of Idaho on a survivalist sled dog ranch, where she spent summers plucking the winter coat from her father's wolf. Wilson Fowley lives in a suburb of Vancouver, Canada, and has been reading aloud since the age of four. His life has changed recently. He lost his wife to cancer, and he changed jobs, from programming to recording voiceovers for instructional videos, which he loves doing, but not as much as he loved Heather. Well done, Allison. You found me. You had to leave your own dimension to do it, but you found me. I have so many questions. Where are we? How did we get here? What does this mean for the Kaleidocast? And where is that experimental public domain mixed percussion sound coming from? I'll admit it's a lot to unpack, but I promise there's an answer to every one of those questions. But first, a word from our sponsors. Uh, who are you talking to? Why, all of you, of course. The Kaleidocast is a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. Our website is www.kaleidocast.nyc, where you can find links to all our contributors and more content to enjoy. This season's Kaleidocast production team was Brad Parks, founder, CFO, and senior producer. Cameron Roberson, executive producer. Sandra Fink, managing producer. Christopher Lazarick. Managing Editor and Production Manager. Marcus Zong, Story Runner. Anton Borst, Editor, Producer, Sound Engineer, Post. Carlos Luis Delgado, Editor and Sound Engineer. Jason A. Smith, Editor, Sound Engineer, Actor. Sam Schreiber, Senior Producer, Senior Editor, Sound Engineer. Holden Lee, Editor, Producer, Sound Engineer. Jason Stack, Editor, Producer, Sound Engineer, Technical Officer. Marcy Arlen, Co-Founder, Associate Producer, Voice Actor, Director. Randy Dawn, Editor, Sound Engineer, Actor. Eric Rosenfield, Chief Technical Officer. S.J. Pendergrad, Associate Editor and Producer. I am McGuire, Associate Editor and Producer. Sadie Kleinman, Producer. Devansha Segel, Associate Editor, Producer, Actor. Katherine Erickson, Associate Editor. And a special thanks to Amachai Green. Our music is used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. This podcast uses many sound effects from YouTube, freesound.org, and from FreeSFX at freesfx.co.uk. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 National License. That means you can listen all you like, but don't sell or change it and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors in usage and reference. This episode has been brought to you by our generous Patreon subscribers whose support has meant the world to us. A special thank you to the Patreon subscribers who made this episode possible. 
Liam Burke, and that guy. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and sign up for more exclusive content at patreon.com slash kaleidocastnyc. 